Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi guys, welcome back to Medicus. Today we have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Amy Blair, who is a board-certified family medicine doctor in Maywood, Illinois. She is also Associate Professor of Family Medicine and Assistant Dean of Medical Education, as well as the Medical Director of Center for Community and Global Health at Loyola Stritch School of Medicine. In addition, Dr. Blair has been a visiting professor and volunteer faculty in local and international underserved settings. Welcome, Dr. Blair. We're very happy to have you today. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and your journey to medicine? Yeah, absolutely. I think our journeys often start at the beginning. So uh, to tell you where I'm from, I'm actually from a farm in a rural area of Illinois, far from the city. So my um, experience growing up was um, in a very small town and actually mostly outside of town on a multi-generational farm where my father and my uncle and my grandfather farmed. So kind of from that uh, beginning, my kind of path toward medicine didn't really start until college, which was at the University of Iowa, where I kind of had a good foundation of uh, educational skills from my high school. But it was really during college where that expanded. And I really became interested in, uh, took my interest in math and science to the humanities. And this was in the mid 90s. So uh, global health was a new sort of topic. Um, At that time, it was a new idea. It was a time of globalization. And it was actually through global health and interest in public health that I was convinced to go into medicine. Um, So I wasn't uh, always going to be a doctor sort of a pathway. But in college, through those kind of courses um, in my global health certificate and exposure to international settings. Even then, I was inspired to use medicine as my my path ahead. That's awesome. It's always super interesting to hear about each person's path into medicine and learn a little bit more about how we all got here. So as Raza said a little bit earlier, you are the medical director for the Center of Community and Global Health here at Loyola. Um, Could you tell us a little bit more about your role and the program? Yeah, so after um, college, I went, I actually was a stretch medical student. I should cap that on to the story of my path to medicine that I was a stretch student and then went away for residency to the University of Michigan in family medicine. So after graduating from residency and some of my international activities happened after that point, I came back, I came back to Loyola to start my first job. And that was uh, 2006. And within two years, the uh, dean at the time and several moving pieces were put into place to create the Center for Community and Global Health. So the center established back then was 2008-2009, and really it was student-driven. Students at the time were doing some, of course, the ISI program existed, and that has like a 30-year history. Um, but students were also craving more international experiences in their fourth year and more longitudinal, you know, after that summer of the first year sort of international activity. 
and ask the administration to start putting some structure and funding around it. And that's how the center started to really work as a, somewhat of a clearinghouse for international opportunities for students at a time where that was really taking off. Um, it, was, it was still before it was kind of standard that everyone had an international activity, but it was a time where it needed more structure. And that's kind of how the, the center started was to, to supply that structure. And for those listeners who might not be super in, uh, involved with the Loyola Stretch opportunities, the ISI trip is called the Ignatian Service Immersion Trip. And it's a program that began in 1993 and is a really good opportunity for students at Loyola to travel abroad and help serve the communities abroad. Yeah, thank you, Erin, for broadening that. And it, it really is the backbone. It's really the foundation of Stretch School of Medicine's global activities. Um, and that also started in a very grassroots way. And the, and the relationships that the school has with several sites are very organic, you know, based on whether it's a faculty who has a relationship with an international site, or um, even sometimes it's through re the religious orders and through the Jesuit um, connections, if you will, that those were all started. And so it used to be international service immersion and then became Ignatian service immersion to kind of also follow what has happened with the Center for Community and Global Health. And that is that, you know, we really feel global means without borders. So global means local and not just international. I don't know, you know, semantics are important. I don't know if the word global always works out well because people's ears still hear international when I say it. At, at one point I was at a global health conference and they were introducing the term global, which I kind of didn't like. So I didn't pick up on that. But it really is pointing to the fact that when we say global and when we started looking at immersion, we find the immersion, you know, domestically or locally, just as important as across borders. Yeah, definitely. I think there's so much work to be done stateside as well. So we definitely have to consider those underserved communities. So you mentioned that you really didn't become involved in global health until college. So can you expand on that? When did you first become involved in global health and what sparked your interest? Yeah, I had a really profound experience on a, a winter a service trip that was uh, sponsored through my church at the border of El Paso, Juarez. So it was a border experience that really I think opened my eyes uh, for the first time to disparity um, really just laid right in front of you. While I had had certainly interactions cross with people from different backgrounds in terms of income levels and educational levels throughout my upbringing, it was not a cross-cultural upbringing and it certainly didn't have a lot of opportunities to see what I saw in El Paso Juarez, which was you know, not only health disparities, but drastic economic disparities that at that time in the 90s were really being driven by a lot of policy changes um, and, you know, kind of digging deep into the U.S. role in causing the poverty that I was seeing was my inspiration. Um, and so then throughout college, I, I just kept seeking more. It was, that was kind of the spark. I did a entire su a summer abroad in the Dominican Republic and really got my Spanish uh, skills there. And then I also did a research project in El Salvador with a public health practitioner who also had a history background. And I was 
investigating uh, vaccine campaigns in El Salvador that took place during the Civil War and how how vaccines or health could be a bridge for divided a divided nation. Um, so that all really, if you can kind of get the feel, was almost like a human rights education. Um, and that was what my international experience was rooted in. It's incredible. Even just sitting here listening, it gets me excited and gets me all riled up. Like that's amazing work that you have done and are continuing to do. But, you know, with that work comes challenges, obviously. And so for our listeners, would you be able to explain some of the challenges or, or differences that you have experienced working here in the United States as a family medicine physician, but also abroad um, in El Salvador and El Paso, because I guess El Paso is part of the global domestic local terminology. But what, is, what are some of the differences that you've noticed between here in the United States and abroad? Yeah, I mean, I think that the first experience anyone feels, it, and I think, you know, if we frame this in terms of going in a health capacity um, to an international setting, is the difference in resources and the resources for clinical practice, you know, what you have at your disposal to be able to use for diagnosis, um, let alone what a clinic or a hospital has at its disposal to manage staff, support staff, or the educational needs of a a healthcare entity. You know, those are differences that that really stand out at me. I, I mentioned after residency was my kind of my longest international experience, and that was in Zambia. And Zambia in the early 2000s was really keeping about 11 trained physicians for the whole nation per year. So workforce capacity, um, you know, that stood out at, at me. And, and, and in that experience, also uh, resource uh, limitations were present. There was not a working radiation machine for cancer in the whole country. So, you know, thinking about going and doing pap smears, for instance, trying to identify uh, cervical cancer early in in a nation, in a whole region of Southern Africa that couldn't treat it, even if it was found. That sort of disparity is dark um, and devastating. Um, But I think it's different in the United States. There's no doubt about it. You know, here, if we found cervical cancer, there would be a way, even before health insurance reform with lots of advocacy to get treatment. But I think the underpinnings are very similar. Populations that have been historically neglected, uh, sometimes systematically uh, neglected, the relationship between poverty and vulnerability, and all the social determinants of health. There's a continuum, you know, here locally and and internationally, which I think this last year of the pandemic has really painted the picture very, very vividly for everyone. And so having worked in the field for a while and my colleagues in the field, uh, we could have called this, right? We, we could see that this, this was a ripe for a, the wildfire of a pandemic, really. Yeah. And I think one important thing to think about, too, what you touched on is just how connected we all are. And with these vaccines that are coming out, you know, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are really meant for wealthy countries, countries that are not going to have resources, are not going to be able to have, you know, minus 80 storage, 
let alone if you think about someone in sub-Saharan Africa who has to walk 10 miles to get the first vaccine, are you going to really be able to get them back in three or four weeks, you know? So I think when we focus too on drug development, especially for, for things like this, for a global pandemic that affects us all, uh, we really need to consider the countries that aren't able to pour all this money in. Because when we think about it, the virus will continue to mutate. Yes. 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 <laughs> and if we don't vaccinate the whole world, we're just going to be in the yes. same predicament over and over again. I 100% agree. I really chuckle almost. Uh, my family will say I will laugh out loud a lot about this concept that like once we get it all set in the United States, we're good. And that's just not the case. And you can see all sorts of reports about 2022 and beyond being the point at which we can say um, the low and low and middle income countries will have adequate vaccination. And we are a global society. I mean, germs have moved across the world with people and animals since the dawn of time. And so it's too bad we don't follow the logic of the preferential option for the poor, really, which is to say, you know, let's start by getting this to the places where we know it's going to be the hardest. And that is no different than what's happening in our country, in our city, and in Maywood for getting the vaccine. It's no different. We didn't start by saying, nope, it's highest risk, not just based on age and essential worker status, but people who can't get on the internet, people who only can use the phone. That's probably our elderly can only book a vaccine appointment by the phone. They should have been our first. Yeah. So the world really is trembling, really, with all of these disparities in front of us. And I really hope, I hope that we get through and look and write the story about what has happened without forgetting history. Like, that happens so quickly, so so often. And back to, you know, people really wanting to be done with this and saying, okay, what? when can, you know, I just get my life back? We can't get our lives back until the world gets their lives back. I absolutely, absolutely agree. So speaking of disparities, I actually just finished reading Melinda Gates's book, The Moment of Lift, which I highly encourage everyone to read. And something that she brings up quite frequently when talking about bringing medical treatments to other countries is that we really have to take the time to understand their culture and their views in order for the interventions to be effective, in order for them to kind of buy in. Have you also witnessed this in your experiences? Yes, I, I'll share a story uh, from my time in Zambia. That was actually the physician I was working with there had been there for a decade and um, told this story I'll call the cup of tea moment. And he told me the story about working in this hospital where he was just doing life-saving um, surgical procedures that they had no one else for a whole large geographic area there to, to do, but struggled with getting um, help from the nursing staff and in the operating room. And he was really struggling with how, you know, how, how can I work these conversations to kind of get the, the stuff done that we need to get done? Very American, right? I know what I need to do. We got to get it done. 
And in his kind of discovery mission, he ended up having a conversation with a nurse, a Zambian nurse, who admitted to him that the problem was that they used to start with tea in the morning together every day. And that was how they could, you know, just get through the day. And then without that fundamental moment that was important to them, not only culturally, although that was probably British culture, right? but the culture of the workplace. So he, you know, once that started, he formed a cohesive team that was able to save even more lives. So, I mean, I think that can be applied literally everywhere, but there are moments in my own experience in global health. And I think many who've been doing it for a while where we look back, I can look back and think, was I really a part of something sustainable? And did I start by saying, what do you need? You know, what, what sort of shared priorities can we find? And where can leadership be shared? I think that conversation is advancing pretty quickly now, saying that not only do we not start by barreling in anymore, we have to start by saying, you are the experts, you are the leaders, and we want to learn from you. And I think that's the only way to get effective, sustainable change that And again, to reference the pandemic, places where there are U.S. and international partnerships, they've had to keep going without foreigners visiting for a long time. And that requires leadership on the ground that was built and sustained and supported by um, institutions from here. So speaking on sustainability, I think that really ties into our next question and next topic we wanted to bring up was that a lot of medical students love global health opportunities. It's a way to travel, experience new cultures, add something on that resume, get really awesome experiences with patients. But many students may feel worried about the stigma of voluntourism on medical school applications or just in general as well. And so you speak about making sustainable changes rather than maybe doing a less sustainable trip over to abroad countries. Um, what is your opinion on voluntourism and, and has it been a significant issue or, or how can we avoid more of these savior complex trips? Yeah, it's a struggle. It's a great question and it's a struggle. I do think it's a, another thing that just by you asking the question and there being an awareness about it starts the right process. There are certain global health experiences that lend themselves well to quick trips Um, For example, surgical campaigns, very well-defined surgeries that don't have a lot of post-op management, um, eye surgeries, uh, to some extent, some ENT surgeries. If the receiving clinic or hospital or group has, you know, responsibly sort of prepped and has the follow-up and the capacity to do it, you know, those can be sort of plug and play, which, which I think for busy students, busy clinicians who just really do want to work abroad. That works, and that's probably okay, again, as as long as all those pieces are played. Now, I think there's a a whole other sort of stew, if you will, ingredients of motivations, you know, motivations that some are great and some you may want to think twice about, and some in the middle, okay? So the thing twice about motivations would be, I want to go so I can practice my clinical skills above my level of training. Above my level of training means getting to go in and be the first assist surgeon, right? But it's 
probably acceptable to say, I want to go and practice my clinical skills that I've already received some training on to be a part of a team doing something important and serving a need that is not there. That's okay. That's acceptable. Um, those are my surgery examples. I'm a family physician. So, you know, in chronic disease management, the being a part of any sort of international experience should be rooted in understanding the history, the culture, a proper pre-trip orientation, uh, making sure you don't become a burden on the site, um, that you don't cost more than you bring. And so I think volunteerism is an issue if you don't think critically before you go. So thinking critically about that, about your role, about the potential to do harm, and how are you going to actively avoid that. There's some nuances in some instances where it's not easy um, because unfortunately in some locations, just by walking in as an American, you will be looked to with some sort of authority that often you don't have and that undermines local expertise. I think that it's gotten better and I think some programs have put into place a lot of checks and balances. But the other concept that's developing and I think two, three years of development from what I read is uh, the concept of decolonizing global health. This is a more fundamental question of whether global health, the whole even term or thought process of we uh, rich countries go to you poor countries and help um, needs to be questioned and might unfortunately reinforce the models of colonization, which took away local expertise and took away the predominance of local governance and um, societal structures that were, were working. So I think that you just have to think critically and, and, and probably start by knowing if those countries had, you know, what was the history with them losing those that power? What's the history economically with them being able to dig themselves out of debt? Those are really just as important motivations and preparations to going as, you know, trying to remember all the intestinal parasites because you're going to see those more than you would here. And that's, um, that, that's, that's a tall order if you're going on a short-term trip and you're a busy fourth year. Um, so, but I think, you know, we, we try to do a lot to just at least get everyone in the mindset before they go. Um, you're there to learn, there to there to observe, and you always learn more than than you can do. Definitely, I think there's a sense of humility and intentionality that a lot of students have to bring when they go into different cultures. And so that's a really great answer, and I, I think it's a really great topic for a lot of students to to think about before engaging. Because I have, in my own personal experience, have heard those. Oh, it'd be so cool to do these trips. I can do X, Y, and Z. I'm a pre-med student. I'm a med student. I might not be prepared to do these, but I get this experience. I get to learn. I get to practice my clinical skills. But the care that you give to those um, abroad should not be different than the care that you give to those here in the United States. Absolutely. Yeah, I think sometimes what would we do if here in Oak Park, Illinois, a doctor from another nation that wasn't licensed to practice here plopped in and said, I think we can help you. Now, isn't it fascinating to think about this last year, the hegemonic dominance of the United States has really been turned upside down. 
we could have used experts that had implemented the Asian model of test isolate. You know, we didn't do it. So I have that ironic answer to that thought, um, Aaron, that, yeah, it should be the same here. And if we wouldn't, if we would be taken aback by a foreign doctor plopping down and saying, we're going to do um, a lot of blood pressure and diabetes screenings here, we should think about uh, how that feels in reverse. Absolutely. So a lot of the students that listen to this podcast are actually pre-medical students. And uh, the trips that we've talked about are organized through the medical schools and are legitimate. But as I was preparing for this episode, I saw that there are a lot of different opportunities on the internet for international service trips. Are all service trips created equal and what should students look for when selecting a program? I think those are great questions and it is difficult, uh, I think, to sift through, especially the kind of cold call nature of looking through them online. So I think first, ideally, you would have some close firsthand knowledge of someone who had gone on the trip to be able to speak very freely about these sorts of concerns of volunteerism, of being put in a position to practice above your uh, training level. And I think second, it's always, I'll always say safety and thinking very actively, who's going to pick me up from the airport? You know, where am I going to be staying? Some pre-trip preparations do just an amazing job of that logistical layout, um, as well as a reflective component to get you prepared. But I think, you know, the ones that kind of look like a, I'll say plug and play again, sort of product, just, just join and come. Those concern me just because I think you always have to be prepared for the unknowns um, in international trips. And remembering that being taken out of your normal context, um, you might have to solve problems in much different ways. So I think it isn't the case that all university-based programs are safe or that all uh, religiously-based organizations run tight ships or that there's any one group that we can say you know, does it seamlessly. And I think they all probably have quality improvement processes where they look back and say, you know, how could this be done different? So firsthand knowledge, I don't think you can beat of finding someone that's done the trip or someone that's a leader that you can really make sure it's going to meet all those ethical considerations. And so global health is incredibly broad field, as, as we've talked about, um, it- covers all specializations, all types of medicine, and encompasses skills from all different types of diverse physicians. But for many students, it can be pretty intimidating to travel to a new country and experience a new culture. Um, I know we talked about selecting programs, but how would you recommend pre-medical students, medical students, and medical professionals to get started in international service who might not otherwise know the first thing about how to get started? Well, I I would say we're very lucky in Chicago to have a really multicultural city, right? And that, you know, immersion cross-culturally is not hard. It's hard because, well, Chicago, again, especially, doesn't put us together geographically. But 
to be able to step outside your comfort zone can happen really close, right? You don't have to travel far. And I think that that's important preparation um, to going abroad is just that reflective piece of how do I do when I'm the minority in a different majority population? How do I do when I'm operating in a different language 24 hours a day, even through an interpreter? How am I with the heat and bugs? You know, um, so working through those sorts of personal pieces so that, um, you know, you can bring your best prepared self. And then really it's a mindset of flexibility. And I think the back to what kind of led me to it is I tended to feel the most myself when placed in places where I was very different. That might not be everyone's feeling and beginning to kind of explore that and, and come up with strategies to how you do under those different pressures. But it's great practice, of course, to being a physician anywhere, being a physician in the United States, um, we will have multicultural practices and you have you know, very brief moments, some, in some cases, to be able to connect. Um, so those are kind of skills that really get greased um, while wheels that get greased when you do international work that you can apply to communication skills throughout your course of being a physician. Yeah, I actually, and I believe that the Center for Community and Global Health is hosting this discussion, but I started reading One by One by One by Aaron Berkowitz. Yeah. And what you just talked about, I think brings to mind, you know, as physicians, I think we do, we live a comfortable lifestyle and when he talks about going to Haiti and even this hospital is set up by Partners in Health, it's brand new complex and there is, you know, a dedicated uh, quarters for people who are serving there. So you would think that it would be maybe comfortable, but he talks about getting there and he's like, oh, like as soon as I walk through the door, the sweltering heat and you know, he discusses the room and how it just fits a tiny twin bed. And so I think you need to understand that as a physician, when you go to countries abroad that are impoverished, you're not going to get any necessarily special treatment <laughs> in terms of, you know, your housing. And he again talks about bringing all these additional nutritional supplements, you know, cliff bars and things like that, because he's like, the diet is really rice and bean. And so really have to be able to be able to immerse yourself in the culture and be okay with that. And I, I appreciate you bringing that to light. Yeah, I say it is a true test of solidarity, right? To live through and with conditions along with people. And that can be just a profound experience. But there are limits that you have to know about yourself and what that line is. And you might not know the first time you go. Um, and then I always, I say this in our own pre-trip of preparation and orientation, um, because one of the biggest risks internationally for people doing international work is uh, road traffic trauma, deaths or injury on the roads, just because the infrastructure for roads and crossings is not the same as here, nor are the resources for if you were ever in a trauma surgically. So. I would say live in solidarity with the people you're with, except for when it comes to transportation. We want you taking the safest transportation every time. Don't ride a motorcycle. Never ride a motorcycle. 
But I agree, it does take a few times to understand what you're comfortable with. And we're all growing, evolving beings. So know that in different stages of your life, you may find some things more or less uncomfortable than the other stages. So with that being said, personally, do you think it's important for individuals, especially medical students and physicians, to engage in international service? And why? I do. I do think it's important. I think, you know, certainly there are ethical considerations, but with the right motivations, the right partnerships, true partnerships, the benefits that are bi-directional with these experiences really open up doors for us to change health disparities, right? Um, I think that's the goal of most global health programs in the U.S. is to begin to change some of the disparities globally. And I think if we keep our eye on the ball of making sure that that's um, bi-directional, you know, for instance, inviting um, students from the countries where we go as students to come here. We're, we've, we've done that at Loyola with the exchange program with Ghana. And that is one example of where we're saying we are a global community and it serves then that we should welcome each other and hope for a world where it's easier for physicians from low and middle income countries to you know, come and share it in knowledge like this. So I do think it's important. I think it gives a worldview that is really important for being a U.S. physician to question systems and question systematic discrimination and question structural contributors to health because everyone will battle those as a U.S. physician trying to work for, for, for health for their patient population. Building off that, but also going back to a previous topic about the broadness and importance of international service. Um, a little personal story, I went to school in San Diego, and so I've done international trips, not super far, a 30-minute trip down past the border to, to Tijuana, to rural parts of Tijuana, but I worked with an organization that would give regular care every couple months to the same communities and really uplift some of these communities, some of them who were basically living and making a living on trash heaps, sifting through the trash, looking for metals to sell. Um, and so providing them with healthcare was a really eye-opening experience for me as a pre-medical student at that time. Um, and, and I hope to continue as a clinician and I hope to continue you know, as a medical student, but um, as an individual who is you know, hoping to contribute to international service or global health and is still looking at different specialties does specialty choice change how you're able to impact these communities? Should students feel like they should stick to primary care to address these health disparities? Or are there ways where um, students can specialize in the specialty that they really hope to pursue throughout their lifetime and still uh, have a, a long lasting impact on global health and opportunities? Yeah, I, I really do think the answer is a simple Yes, to students should be able to do global health through whatever specialty they choose. Because, and you know, Aaron Berkowitz's uh, book speaks to this too. Each one of the nations in low and middle income countries, each one of these countries needs specialty care. Uh, we don't want the situation where uh, we wouldn't think to send the high level, you know, vascular neurosurgeon and her or his equipment 
to another nation to do a treatment. Now, does that happen? Not often because it's logistically difficult, but we want to hope for a world where even the sub-sub-specialized care could be utilized everywhere. I do think that if the vision is more of a long-term, you know, living and being the primary physician responsible for usually it's a large geographic area, you know, a district hospital that um, in rural areas across the globe, you need to have such a breadth of skills that the specialties that lend you the broadest training lend well to you hitting the ground prepared. Now, I think it's also important to know that, and this is, I guess, general advice, it's not that you complete your training and then you're done and you can never go back and learn additional skills. If, if anyone is giving that idea, that is not true. For some instances to practice and, and do it here in a licensed way, you'll have to go through another residency or fellowship. And no, that does not sound fun. But there are pathways within the different specialties to get additional skills. Um, that I know some of the practitioners, again, that have lived and done their life's work internationally have been able to pull that off, which is, you know, getting additional training as needed. So I, I could say, you know, family medicine and emergency medicine, because they're very broad, they include uh, women's health. Obstetrics is, if you're going to be the one doctor, you better <laughs> know how to do C-sections, Right. I would say even then beyond that, you know, trauma care, fracture care, these are the bread and butter needs of, of the population. So family medicine, emergency medicine, pathways in global health. And of course, those are the ones I'm familiar with, but they certainly allow that sort of initial foundation of skills that then were you to kind of practice internationally and need to continue to increase your competency, you could uh, find ways to do that. But it isn't the case that if you became a subspecialist, there would be no work for you abroad. There will always be opportunities. Well, that's really great to hear that all of us, regardless of the path that we choose, can see, you know, global health in our future. And circling back to global health being even local health, we'd be remiss not to mention some of the recent work that you've been doing here at home. So you are part of the team that started Circle, which is the COVID Equity Response Collaborative. And it was recently awarded the 2020 People of the Year by Maywood's Village Free Press. Can you talk a little bit about the collaborative? Yeah, absolutely. It has felt for the last year through the work of Circle that I've been doing an international trip. It feels like a really long international trip. Yes, in the spring uh, last year, it was it was April uh, 2020 that Dr. Luke of Public Health Sciences and I were talking and realized that there were some opportunities to solve, which at the time was the most fundamental problem of us uh, turning the pandemic around, and that was access to testing, even in, for patients in my clinic was so limited and so heartbreaking, really, to care for people. Uh, that I could uh, not really get the best care for. So through the state, actually, there were COVID testing materials 
that were going to be made available through the village of Maywood. And then through just an, a very organic process that was also led by a lot of students, we were able to bring together a team that started doing uh, testing in the Rock of Ages Church parking lot once a week and up in Melrose Park at Casa Esperanza once a week as well for Maywood, Bellwood, and Melrose Park, which at that time in the spring had a disproportional impact for the whole Chicago area during certain times. If you looked at the map, it had some of the highest positivity rates. And Suburban Cook is a little hard to bring the resources to. There are different barriers for uh, folks who are poor in Suburban Cook County. So we started that testing and it continued through the summer and then through public health sciences, we're able to get a grant and it's continuing. Even today, there's uh, testing going on. Uh, Maywood has a famous alum that grew up in Maywood is Doc Rivers, the basketball player and I guess coach. Um, He has helped come back and fund some additional testing days uh, for Maywood. And so really making a community partnership out of this. And uh, even over the summer at our site, there was voter registration and census taking tables. So it was really, again, a way to grab a hold of the opportunities that the pandemic is presenting um, to reach out and build bridges with the community. And also, um, we were able to really ramp up testing in uh, populations that needed it. That's fantastic. And I think we touched a little bit about this previously when we were talking about vaccines, but why is it in the best interest of everyone to provide free COVID tests to these underserved communities? Yeah, again, I'll reference what we can call somewhat generically the Asian model, but um, you can all go and look at the country comparisons. I believe uh, Vietnam still has fewer than 50 deaths from COVID, right? 500,000 here um, in the U.S. And so they've got something going that works, right? And that is widespread testing that's free, that isn't limited by county or state municipalities. It's a national system. And that that um, testing and identification of cases and supported isolation, right? We would want to have a system where if you tested positive and were at home, there wouldn't be three layers of hoops to jump over to make sure you could keep your job and therefore your health benefits. Um, So I think that free accessible testing is the way, and it's not the only factor that has resulted in success in other countries, but it certainly is where we floundered. And um, I think even still, we're still trying to work on making uh, testing and identification of cases the bread and butter of our response. And so uh, I think our, our system of healthcare delivery that focuses on cost effectiveness or cost in general um, was a real handicap for us from the beginning to even begin to know how to get testing out to insured people, let alone the uninsured. Right. It's really interesting to hear you say that because as an Asian American myself, um, my dad has a lot of friends who have family in the Asian American community who are back in China, Singapore, Hong Kong. 
And when they have to go back to see the family for you know XYZ reason, they have to plan for a four, five, six week vacation because when you get there, you have to stay in, you get off the plane and there's a little bus there and they say, we're going to take you to a hotel and you'll be there for two weeks. And there's no other option. That's what the government says you have to do and you have to do it. You're tested every day while you're there. And it's a very strict quarantine, but obviously for a lot of those Asian countries, as you said, it's worked tremendously for um, keeping their population safe, which is a drastic difference from what I've experienced here when I went home to, to quarantine for multiple months during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and when school went completely virtual. You get off the plane, it's like, okay, well, we'll see, we'll see, you, uh, see you later. Come back on to uh, the airport and fly with us again. And so it's just a very different type of response that I've personally have heard of and, and experienced. Yeah. And I feel like you don't even have to go that far. Again, talking about our global community. So uh, my mom took a trip to Hawaii. Full disclosure, my mom and her husband have had COVID-19. Now, Hawaii requires you to get tested prior you entering that state. And they assumed that the rapid test would be okay, but apparently was not. So as soon as they got off the plane, the nice people told them, you are going here. We will meet you at the hotel. They were taken to the 24th floor of a hotel and were not giving keys because they cannot leave. <laughs> so <laughs> I think, you know, even looking not so far, there are certain states that are doing a much better job of others. And we need to start communicating and learning from each other what works. And Hawaii does have a low rate of COVID-19 infections. And it's because, you know, they really enforce these strict rules. So yeah, I just, I, I find that really interesting. Yeah, again, I kind of want to be at the end of this and read the book. <laughs> and, and I mean, the chapter on cultural differences and how they contribute to the outcome of a global pandemic is going to be a juicy a chapter. And I think it's not a black and white civil liberties or none sort of discussion. I just really hope we can learn and keep talking and not just get things set right and then look for our creature comforts to return and forget about what we've learned. Well, Raza and I want to thank you for this conversation. We have a few more questions just kind of closing up and kind of hearing your last remarks. But from our correspondence, I spoke a little bit about my family and family is obviously very important to you. How have you been able to find a balance between your clinical responsibilities, personal life, your work at CCGH and all the international service that you've been able to do? Yes, it's a constant balancing act. There's no doubt about it. I think when you carry multiple roles as a person, you run the risk of always feeling like one of them isn't quite going well and getting kind of used to that reflective assessment of where you may need to reprioritize. It's constant. I wouldn't let you listen to any sort of wellness or work-life balance talk and think that there's a point where you make it. No, there are good days and bad days. My children, I have three children, and uh, my oldest are 11 twins, and my youngest is eight. So I will say it, it did certainly um, make my international work uh, have a little bit of a pause. The wonderful things that grow from being a parent personally, and I would even say as a, for me as a care provider, I far outweigh any sort of 
a detriment to not have, having been able to travel. Uh, there's there's a little hint here. You know, one baby, maybe you can go abroad with two at the same time. It's really hard. And so I think that for me, and I guess I'm a generalist, right? I'm I'm in family medicine and I have these interests and I really couldn't see myself not having multiple roles. My life in order to feel really enriched has to have this kind of constant set of activities, which means challenges too. But yeah, I think life with your family and being a physician and whether you're their biological children or just your friends and friendships that you want to keep up, it makes you a more rounded person and, and more well-rounded people are better physicians. So that good internal feedback makes it all work. Any parting words of advice for medical students interested in global health? Well, I will say that everyone can be involved. And if you've heard this and thought, huh, I really don't like heat or bugs, you know, there are ways to make a difference. And, you know, your ability to make a difference with the individuals you see here, not to be too cheesy, but that can really ricochet around the world is, you know, the goodness that you bring in um, working for health equity and that you keep that open mindset and act ethically and think critically, I think there there's great potential for bi- bi-directional benefit. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Blair. We really appreciate your time and it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.